The hardest part about being in places that low, that heavy, that that hopeless, is that the parts of you that keep you going, the rational parts of you that try to construct reasons, are kind of turned inwards and turned against you. And it's a time when there's there's not solutions. You can't logic your way out of it. You can't try to do something. Just be like, oh, it gets better immediately. The only thing that I can speak to on that is that it's a temporary state, and all things change. If you asked me seven years ago, do I want to keep existing? The answer would have been like a definitive no. But now, after what has happened in those years, like therapy is an amazing tool. And if you have access to mental health care, absolutely great. Grab that branch, and that can be a saving thing for so many people. But if you ask me, you know, every year since then, how I felt about the, the life that I've had because I didn't succeed, because I didn't try. It gets better. It doesn't get better because it just always will. It gets better because you make it better. And there are people that you just might not know or remember or see who are there. The aloneness is irrational, just like the other parts. I am eternally grateful to bring you this episode of The Cultural Hall. We need to have more and better conversations about how we can uh, help those of our LGBTQ brothers and sisters uh, as they come out, as they uh, share their journey, as they uh, uh, allow us into their lives, into their experience, and to talk about how we can better be advocates for them. I think that that's a powerful part of this discussion today. Also, as, uh, as people find themselves maybe taking a little bit of a leave of absence from the church or maybe a permanent absence from the church. I think being able to have and nurture and curate better relationships with individuals that find themselves in that situation, also valuable and also under spoken of within the church. So I'm excited to share this episode with you. Uh, reminder that you can become a patron saint. Go to patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall to hear all of the great episodes and find and follow us on social media. I want you to know that I am grateful for you as well. That is why I present for you now at this time, this episode of the cultural hall. Jesus it's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall, and I am excited for this episode for a few reasons. One, I get to know Matthew Gong. Two, I get to find out how we can be better supportive allies and advocates for our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And three, I want to be able to talk about how we can support those who maybe transition themselves out of the faith. It's going to be some maybe hard conversations. Uh, it's not something that I need feel like I'm particularly good at or bad at, but I want to be able to learn. Uh, Matt said that he would answer my questions honestly and that he would help us all uh, to be able to to help and support those that we love. And so I'm looking forward to this episode. Matt, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So for people um, who may not know your story, give me, uh, give me kind of that boilerplate. You are who? So uh, I'm a queer Mormon. I came out to my family uh, over a decade ago. Uh, I've been trying to talk with them about queer issues and, and helping them kind of understand kind of the landscape of uh, queer issues in the church as a broader context, but more so just my own story and helping relate that to their experiences so that they can have a deeper understanding of what we queer members face. And for those who are not super familiar with my story, my dad is an apostle, and we often go toe-to-toe -to -toe in conversation about what it means to, like, be a Mormon. 
And when you say a, a couple things that I want to pick up, you say that you are a queer Mormon. So do you uh, do you ascribe to the idea that since Mormonism is where you were raised and where you come from, that that you are, in fact, a queer Mormon or are you still practicing but queer? I think that's an important distinction to make. So I kind of view the church and uh, Mormon culture as an ethnicity. Uh, I, I refer to it as the diaspora. So people who fall, fall anywhere within the spectrum of belief or non-belief, but those who are raised within it uh, would be you know, Mormon by heritage, even if they're not Mormon by practice. In terms of uh, attending church, I haven't been for a while. Uh, it's not a thing that I have negative feelings towards. It's just not a thing that I do. I found that my spiritual journey has led me to other places. Yeah, and hopefully within this, I want to hear some of uh, those places or some of your spiritual journey, uh, not just centered in, on this particular time, because I feel like that's important. The other thing that I would to ask is, you say toe-to-toe, and sometimes I think maybe that's a delicate way of saying there might be a shouting match in the gong household. <laughs> what, is, what, is that, uh, what are those discussions look like? Uh, most of them happen behind closed doors and they're, you know, personal family discussions for the most part. But uh, when there are issues to be talked about, if there's current events or, or things that are happening in my own life that we'll talk about, that we'll have discussions. Uh, I don't think uh, people normally get to see inside of that space, partially mm -hmm. because my family likes to stay fairly private about everything. And just the nature of the church, uh, the higher ups, people tend to be pretty private uh, about personal stuff in general. So we don't ever shout, that's not a thing gongs do, but we do get very passionate about the arguments that we're putting forward, and it becomes a very intellectual debate. Hmm. So take us back to uh, 10 plus years ago, when you're like, I, I think I'm queer, and that's obviously going to have an effect on my life. Yeah, so I knew that I was, so queer is like a catch-all term that I use. Uh, it, most people would consider me gay, but it's easier to, to say queer for a lot of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I knew I was like different air quotes. Uh, when I was like seven, I have distinct memories of my mom taking me Christmas shopping and I stopped in front of the underwear display mannequins and I was like, oh, these are really interesting. And I didn't have a word for it until, you know, as a teenager, I was like, oh, I thought they were hot. Mm -hmm. um, but I, like, I knew I was different for a while. And that really impacted my teenage years where I, I knew that I didn't fit in both in like the culture because I grew up in, in Provo, Utah, and in sort of the plan of salvation like where was my spot what was I supposed to do because like I knew marrying a woman would probably lead to me being miserable and me you know not being in the church also was a terrifying thought so I knew I was different for a while but I didn't come up to my family until uh, I was 20. Uh, I was on my mission I sat down for my 20th birthday and said I'm gonna come out to my family I've been out to myself for two or three years now I, I you know finally said the words like I I am gay mm -hmm. to myself in the bathroom mirror at college and I thought it was time to tell them. So I wrote a letter to each of them, one by one. I would write, I wrote them for my brothers and then my mom and then my dad and like in order saying, you're the first person, the third person, the last person I'm telling and here's why. Hmm. And then sent the letters and then tried to go about my day as if everything was normal. Um, <laughs> didn't really work. And my mission president was, was like, Elder Gong, you're not doing anything today. Why, why are you just kind of like staring at your screen? It's not a P day. And I was like, well, I don't know. There's some stuff at home. He's like, well, if there's a girl at home, you know, you should really just like keep focused on the field. And I was like, eh, it's a little bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, I just told my family that I'm gay and I don't know if I get to go home from here. Like, where am I going to go back to when I come home from my mission? Because uh, I ended all the letters with you have a year to figure I'm staying on my mission. You have a year to figure it out. Mm. Mm. So, so I want to pick up a couple things there too. Uh, give me an idea. What year are we talking? How long ago 
This is, if I'm doing math right, right around 20, uh, oh, nine, 2009, 2010? Uh, this is uh, 20, 2011. Okay, okay. Uh, like tail end of 2011. And so you send um, you send these letters out. I, I would be curious, what was the feeling uh, as you sent out the first letter? And if it's too private to share who that was with and and then the last letter. And is that part of like this advocacy, comfortability, uh, a great launching pad for the conversation that we're looking to have tonight? Yeah, I can talk a little bit about the responses. I think for the sake of my like siblings privacy, I'm not going to say which ones to see if a brother replied well or not. Sure. Uh, so I started with my siblings because I figured they would be the most supportive. And then I ended with my father and one of my brothers who uh, had said homophobic things um, that I had heard multiple times, not directed at me, but just kind of been around when he said negative things about college mm -hmm. people he'd met. So I started with the, the sibling I thought would be safest and you know went down the line to there. Uh, I gave people about a day before I would send the next one so that they could, and I'd tell them who had already known so they could talk about it amongst themselves. The feeling was like relief and terror because I knew what I was doing was what I needed for my own sanity and, and health and safety and like what I wanted to do genuinely. But it was also this really terrifying thing because I was pretty sure my family wasn't going to reject me, but I had no guarantees. And so there's that real risk of losing something that I valued quite deeply. And all that in the environment of a mission where I think it's different nowadays in 2021 than probably it even was in 2011 than when it was when I served, which is a decade before that. In the time that I served, you would never have had a missionary talk to anyone about being gay or even have thoughts of gay or, or of being gay or of talking to the mission president or anything like that. Like that, that was unheard of. Now to hear that you, you know, right around that 2010, 2011 are having that conversation to where now I'm hearing that there are lots of people and, and, and they're able to have those really great conversations with mission presidents. I'm sure that's not the case for everyone, but that's just a matter of 20 years and how much that's changed. Yeah, I mean, even within my own mission that changed because my first mission president referred me to a reparative therapy group, which I politely declined. And my second mission president was like, well, let's have a conversation about it. But I know that even for my era, uh, when I told him, I was like, well, screw it. Like, there's a 50-50 chance he sends me home on the spot for saying I'm gay. Like, right. <laughs> uh, let's take that risk. I was kind of, you know, ready to take on the world at that point. What was it about the, the 20th birthday? Was it the fact that you had a year before you would return that kind of, you know, gave you the, the kind of oomph to do it then? Was it, you know what, I'm not going into my 20s hiding this anymore. I'd need to to get this off my chest now. What was it that was significant about that particular time? So for me, it was, uh, I, I wanted them to have time to reply and I wanted to be away from them while they were figuring things out. Cause when people come out, there's a lot of kind of immediate gut reactions and grief and things that happen from their family that are actually really hard to deal with if you're present. It's hard to be the person who's causing those feelings and the person who needs support at the same time. And so for me, being able to communicate only through text via letters or emails was a, a way of like insulating myself from mm -hmm. some of the immediate gut reaction. So if someone had said something off the cuff in the heat of the moment, they couldn't actually just say that because I wasn't there. So it was give them time. And also I want a little bit of space away so that I can figure things out for me. But I knew going into it that that is what I wanted because mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to hide anymore. I wanted my family to know me as me and not the person who they thought I was or their expectations of who they thought I was going to be. 
So what was that response like? Again, you're not going to tell me who it was, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not necessarily looking for that, right? But I would be curious as to, as people responded, was it pretty well on point? Was it supportive? Was it harder because it was a written word and you couldn't have the conversation? What were those responses like, especially as they come in, right? You don't know when they're coming. Yeah, they came in pretty quick. Um, my, my family is a little bit technophile, so when they have something hit their inbox, they, they like to reply. My the first couple of responses, like all of them were positive. None of them were negative or rejecting. At worst, they were, I don't understand. This is going to take time. We'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. But there was always the affirmation of care and affection. Like you're still part of our family. We'll figure out what this means. Um, the best response uh, I got was actually from my sister-in-law. And her response was, well, how do you feel about it? Because you're telling me this really big thing about you. And how do you feel? And I was like, well, no one really asked that. I just kind of figured people would have their own opinions and you taking the time to like, let me speak is really helpful for this. So would that be then, as we're using uh, this discussion that we have to be able to learn a great deal of lessons, would you say that that would be uh, the number one or one of the best responses that individuals could have as someone comes up, comes out to them, we ask, well, how are you doing with it? Yeah. I, so I think that I would go with that as like the default for a couple of reasons. One, it, humanizes it and it's not about well here's my opinion here's my gut reaction oftentimes when queer mormons come out they get preached at they're like well you know what the scriptures say and i, I can assure you that we probably are more familiar with what they say on that regard because we're trying to figure out how we live in accordance to it when we're first coming out mm -hmm. and when people are coming out there's so many different places you can be some people are in a state of self-loathing like i hate this about myself i want to be different and some people are like settled and this is who i am and now i know what i want out of life and letting people kind of speak their truth, tell their story from where they're at, gives people the leeway to explore the topic without the pressure of having to come up with responses to doctrine or to the other person's feelings. Hmm. I, I really like that. If, if that isn't our gut reaction, what are some other great reactions that, that we can have or that we can express if someone says, hey, you know what, I want you to know, I trust you, you're in my circle, I want you to know that I am a, a queer Mormon. Uh, expressing love and affirmation of just saying, you know, that's, uh, thank you so much for telling me, like, that's awesome that you're comfortable around me to say that, like, first and foremost, like, I care about you, like, you're my friend, my sibling, whatever it happens to be, and expressing love, because even if you don't know how they're feeling, it's like never wrong to tell someone that you care about them and that you're there to support them. Right. Uh, I appreciate it, and I want to turn it on its side as well. You mentioned probably preaching at uh, the, the person. Quoting a scripture is not a great, uh, a great next move, unless that, uh, that's a scripture based sort of in love or whatever. What are some of those things that you're like, man, maybe tone that down, or maybe don't do that as someone comes out? Uh, so I've had a lot of spiritual leaders at, when I was at BYU, when I would tell them I'd move into the ward and say, hey, by the way, I'm you know gay. They'd be like, well... The scriptures say like don't act on it it's okay that you are gay but you know don't tell anybody or you know don't talk about it or kind of keep it quiet there's a lot of these things where people try to put you back in the closet we're like no 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 like either i don't want to know that or just like you can say you're gay just don't actually be gay mm -hmm. and so they'll quote scriptures about stuff from leviticus or they'll talk about um you know elder packer's uh, miracle for forgiveness or you know other other things like that and they'll kind of quote these scriptures and it feels very weaponized of just like, go back in the closet, like trying to push you back in with the words. How much of that do you suppose is that we're just not very good at it? I think a lot of it is cultural. I think the amount of exemplars or just times that we have an example to look to are 
of here's how you react when someone comes out. We look at the last you know 35 years of church history for just what the rhetoric has been. Uh, and we have, you know, even in the last 10 years, the shift from it's okay to punch your companion if he comes on to you, because that's what we were taught in Miracle Forgiveness, to uh, more recent talks where it's, you know, and no one expects them to change, right? They, they are who they are, and that that's who they are. So we see this kind of growth and progression within that. So, so what was then, you have the initial reaction, and I think that if, if everyone sort of initially reacted and then no one responded afterwards, that's almost like putting you back in a closet or like, cool, 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 great to know that, we don't want to talk about it, you're fine, just we don't talk about it. What were those subsequent sort of interactions like, or what would be beneficial, what can we learn from, from your story, your example, what would be beneficial as we continue to love and support? So the initial conversations were all really affirming but then came the awkward period of well how do we actually show that because when people are kind of re-clarifying expectations there's this idea that you uh that i kind of like and i think it's also a little bit sad that when your kid comes out you have to grieve for the person who you thought they were going to be Hmm. because your expectations about their life but you know getting married in the temple having kids having a family uh all of those change even if the same desires are like i still want to you know get married and have kids at some point but it will very likely not be in the temple for a bunch of reasons. Right. Um, but I know that my parents had to kind of deal with the kind of split that had occurred where the, who they thought I was versus who I am. And as we spent the next, it took two or three years to really begin reconciling those two and having the conversations. Initially, I didn't really want to talk about stuff because, you know, it was a place where there was tension, right? It wasn't that people didn't love each other. It was just there was a chance that people said rude things or hurtful things unintentionally. No malice, but when your parent says something that is pretty clear that they're a little bit ashamed of your choice, Mm -hmm. it's hurtful, even if it's not meant that way. So it took two or three years of us trying to have these conversations. And the the thing that kept, I think, a lot of this more amicable or easier was whenever there would be a disagreement, we would try to make sure we ended the conversation with the reason we're having this tension, the reason this, this conflict is occurring is we care about the person more, like we care about this relationship, you and me more than we care about the the temporary discomfort. Like we know we're going to figure this out. We'll still be family at the end of this, Mm. but in the short term, we don't know how to agree or we don't know how to disagree well. I think that's a thing that just as people in general, we struggle with, right? If we have a disagreement, look no further than any social media where you have one camp, one camp, and it's, I hate you, you're the worst person. And and to be able to to learn from, from that example, which you just shared, which is let the people know that you love them and that you'll in fact figure it out. Maybe you're not going to figure it out right there in that moment, that second, but that you care enough to try and figure it out. And I, And I think that that's really honest too, and I appreciate you being vulnerable about it. You know, as a parent, as I saw, you know, my kid make choices, I, and let me take back that word. I don't want to say choices. When I would, when I would see, um, you know, what, what now I'm fumbling through it, like the expectations, right? I sort of mapped out this life for my kid, and when it didn't go to the map that I had, like there, there was, you know, there was that part of me that was like, oh, I okay, how does this go? And it wasn't because of relationship choices or anything like that. But I think lots of parents sort of have those expectations um, for their kids no matter what. And we'd be good to let go of all expectations. But that's hard. 
Yeah, well, and I think one of the difficulties is expectations come from ideals. And a lot of the ideals that we hold culturally and religiously aren't exactly a bad thing, like the desire for family and connectedness and community and like safety and security. They're all really healthy ideals. The, the issue becomes when they become uh, are one size fits all and you must conform to the ideal to gain entrance to the community hmm. where, I mean, we see this when people are looking at single parent homes in the church or we're looking at people who... Um, mixed religious marriage so one member one non-member marriage and we have a lot of these things where they're they're they don't fit this ideal that's kind of pushed into the culture that you know one man one woman uh middle class white uh <laughs> as kind of the ideal and if you're not those things then it can be a little bit jarring to try to interact with this yeah I, to speak to that so my wife is not a member of the church and and i would have never considered that to be any sort of issue. And there have been people that have uh, countless amounts of times come to me and said, hey, how are you guys able to navigate that? And I'm like, uh, I mean, I love her and support her and she loves me and supports me. I guess maybe that's a, an odd thing or or maybe we're a unicorn in that respect. Or, or maybe just like you say, we don't look like everyone else as far as what our marriage looks like. But but it, it is interesting how much we engage in those things that are different and go, oh, that's different, cannot compute and sort of move along. Yeah, there's this is not unique to queerness, but I, I mean, that 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 feeling of just kind of the, the helpful, well, you, you don't fit the ideal. How are you surviving? It, there's this very frustrating implication of like, because you're not, quote unquote, normal, like you must be doing badly mm. or worse than than the ideal. And it, there's this I think it's well intentioned, but it's a little bit condescending almost. Mm. Uh, I want to take a break here because uh, I want to pick it up from the side of the church. You mentioned plan of salvation. I want to dive a little bit into to that a little bit. We'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall. Hey everyone, this is Kurt Frankham from the Leading Saints podcast. If you'll allow me to slide into the back row of the cultural hall and let you know of an upcoming virtual conference that you got to check out. In an effort to bring more thoughtful dialogue to the topic of mental health in the Latter-day Saint context, the team over at Leading Saints has put together the Mentally Healthy Saints Virtual Summit. We have interviewed 20-plus individuals with expertise or real-life experience related to so many mental health topics, including anxiety, depression, eating disorders, ADHD, and even scrupulosity, which is religious obsessive-compulsive disorder. We will discuss all these topics as they relate to the Latter-day Saint faith experience and how we can all come together to better minister to those who struggle with mental health. It's free to attend virtually, and you got to join us. For more details on what topics will be covered and to register for free, text the word LEAD to 474747 or simply visit leadingsaints.org slash mental health. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 or visit leadingsaints.org slash mental health. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, I would to lead you to patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. If you like this episode, you like other episodes that we've done of the Cultural Hall, uh, these things cost money, kids. I mean, not to you guys. Uh, we do it free, but we do love financial support uh, by offerings uh, at patreon.com forward slash the Cultural Hall. You get to be a Patreon saint and you get to be a part of that secret but not sacred Facebook group. Oh, wait. Yeah. Secret, but not sacred. I got tripped up in my words. Uh, won't you please join us there? Patreon.com forward slash the cultural hall. So there is that interesting part with your journey, Matt, where 
So you come out with your family, and how is this going to be? And then there's also that sort of, I hope that reckoning isn't too hard of a word, but you look at it and you go, and how, being a queer Mormon, how does this fit in with A, the plan of salvation, B, the rest of my life, and C, the expectation that maybe you have for yourself? So let's pick up that. I've got about 60 seconds to talk to you about Best DJ in Utah. Now, here's the deal. I have almost attained this for real, meaning I almost have the most reviews in the state of Utah as far as DJ services go. How about that? That's Best DJ in Utah, and I didn't just buy the web domain. That's actually some proof in the pudding. Here's the deal. Doing lots of events. I'm able to do it from a socially uh, distant, a physically distant distance. That's a lot of distance, I just said. Uh, but if you want to find out more about how I may be able to make your party, whether that be holiday or family reunion, or you've got a wedding coming up, make that the best event it possibly can be, I would hope that you would please join me over at bestdjinutah.com. You can find out about pricing, ask for a quote, and be able to correspond with me there. The website, again, is bestdjinutah. And don't let the name fool you. I'm going to Texas next month. Bestdjinutah.com. Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Yeah, big topic. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> just nice and, you know, smooth. Just just work that in there. Yeah, so the initial changes uh, that I think were, were difficult is uh, because I had spent so much time and effort in my teenage years trying to fit the mold that would make it so I would, you know, be in the plan of salvation, trying to make myself straight uh, through trying to be the, like, a very good Mormon, mm -hmm. whatever that actually means, trying to be uh, devout and show up to seminary and stuff, which I was terrible at. I had a really hard time conforming as it is. And like it, I got super depressed um, mm -hmm. and it was incredibly taxing on my mental health to tried to do this to myself um, to the point where it's uh, still kind of a point of pain, even mm. a couple years later. Um, not, not for me now, but you know, into my twenties, five years after I came out, it was still something that like had wounded me and there needed to be a lot of healing to, to get past that. Um, the notion that the, I think the part that's most difficult about this, trying to reconcile queerness, self-identity and religion is the when we buy into religious beliefs it's built off of the best things it's the desire for community the desire for progression becoming better for security for understanding the world as it is and trying to grow from that and when those kind of that contract is the wrong word but the expectations that we the hope we place on the church on the principles on the beliefs we have when that hope is betrayed either through living the reality and in my case when people were talking about oh this is what it means to be gay and they said you know you're going to die of aids you're going to be uh promiscuous and and the only option is to be celibate or you'll die of aids and to be a you know 21 year old kid who 
had no intention of either of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, it just felt so jarring to that my reality was so different than what I was being told. And having that trust be broken is damaging and really hard to recover from. So when it comes to reconciling it, the line from a song of, from an artist that, that I love is my past is more clay than stone, where as we have, as I have kind of grown and learned and experienced more, looking at the past as something immutable has actually changed where the way I interact with different parts of my upbringing or my, like how I view my mission, that has changed. And it's a, a thing that I get to kind of pick how I want to interact with it. And so there's this healing that can occur by choice. So some of it is just time. And a lot of it is, you know, this has affected me for so long. And now I'm at a place where I can choose if I want this to keep affecting me or not. Was there difficulty in, you know, coming out on the on your 20th birthday, um, talking to your mission president, letting your family know, and then still uh, day by day for a year teaching the plan of salvation? Was there was there inner strife with that? Not really, partially because my mission was super weird to begin with, and my last year was spent not really doing proselyting in a very traditional sense. It was, my, my mission is an odd, odd case. I was in the office for 13 months. Oh. Uh, I spent more time doing Adobe Photoshop than I did knocking doors for a bunch of weird reasons. But I went on my mission fully knowing that I was gay, uh -huh. and I hadn't found there, uh, it was not incongruent for me to be preaching about religion, because uh, at that point, my response to like, well, how does queerness fit into the plan of salvation was essentially, I don't really know, but I know that God is good. Mm -hmm. And trying to help people feel connected to deity was what kind of kept me going on the mission. Yeah. Uh, after I came back and was back at BYU and people were much more orthoprax about <laughs> things, uh, it became a lot harder. I ended up uh, being a teacher in my Sunday school uh, I was teaching marriage and family prep and they had me there for exactly one week before they're like, nope, nope, nope. This yeah. is a bad fit. <laughs> Which I just sort of laugh because we always talk about the inspiration that comes with callings. And, and I believe in it, right? I feel like I've been in callings that have been inspired before, but you hear something like that. And after a week they go, no, no, no. You're like, Hey, where were you guys? Where, where were you on that? Uh, the inspiration, or maybe it was maybe you, for you to be able to, to, uh, to stand and to speak and to teach just for that one time. Maybe that made the difference. Yeah, I mean, I had a ton of fun. I got kind of like shepherds pulled from the pulpit because I was talking about how all families are valid and all families fit into God's plan. And I was like, I'm pretty sure that's what it says in the scriptures. But <laughs> Oh, Matt Gong, the rabble rouser of Sunday school. But valuable to be taught and something that I feel like we are missing and, and that I hope that people are getting um, from this conversation is that you're, you are a, a guy who loves God, who loves and understands that God loves him. And, and that more than any of the other things that we've talked about is what seems to permeate from you to me. Yeah. I mean, what that means I think has changed, but I, I still have, you know, belief in some form of deity personifying it and other things I, I think changes by day, but who knows? Uh, I have learned that my life is not nearly as fixed as I thought it was. And so my beliefs now might not be my beliefs in five years. So, yeah. In the, in the words of a, a really wise interviewee that I had one time, he talked about how his past was more clay than, oh wait, that was you. I love that. <laughs> that I, I really will share that with folks. That's such a great example of how our past can be. So you, you get to BYU, which 
to me seems almost more overwhelming. You talk about the orthoprax, you know, that being that very stringent, very kind of one way that, hey, I want to share this other way of thinking or, or behaving or feeling, and that doesn't seem like that would be fertile ground for that. It would seem to me that at some point you probably said, this does not serve me anymore. Being here, doing this does not serve me. This isn't, you know, this isn't God's plan uh, for me at this time, or my mental health isn't well, or or something along those lines that would make you kind of step back. Am I accurate in that? Yeah, BYU was incredibly difficult. Part of the difficulty is I feel like I had my like personal spiritual epiphany to come to accept myself, to, to come into self-love. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very entwined with my spirituality of coming to love myself as being queer. Uh, ironically, I, I think I went from uh, being an atheist at 14 to being a deist at 18 because I came out to myself. And those are linked moments to me. At BYU, I found that the church culture had been kind of weaponized and it being so concentrated was pretty toxic. When I, uh, I, I had notions that, you know, maybe if I stick around, I can make things better. Mm-hmm. And I would come out uh, at church and I, you know, give a talk and talk about how like God loves everybody. And then uh, my car would get vandalized mm-hmm. um, or I'd get jumped walking back from Seven Eleven. So is that real? It, yeah. Uh, I came out and someone drew pink penises on the back of my car in chalk. Uh, uh, I don't know when, but it happened before I went to work the next morning and I got to work and didn't, hadn't seen it. And so I had to like scramble to clean them off my car. I'm so sorry. That's ridiculous. I know. I mean, if you wanted to scare away a gay guy, you don't draw penises, you draw something else. (laughs) Come on. Imagery, people. Imagery. Just think it through. (laughs) And beat up too. literally jumped in Provo, Utah. Uh, Four guys in a car pulled up behind me, and uh, if it hadn't been for people nearby with cameras, they, they they were getting out of the car. They saw some of the camera, and then they drove off. Like they got back in the car, and drove off. But they were yelling slurs and insults for you know a block and a half that they had been following me, just driving matched pace. Mm. Mm. Hard to hear that, and and sorry for. I mean, it, it wasn't me that did it, obviously. But to, to, to hear and to know that, th- that those you could, I mean, certainly the assumption is, is that those that you would worship in the same pews with could be some of those people. It's yeah, not, I mean, I mean, it's not likely that these were just people that came into Provo going, where's the queer guy? Let's get him. Oh, the, you know, and then drive off to wherever else they're from. I mean, these are likely people who, who uh, allege and claim to be part of the same faith tradition as you and clearly are missing something. Yeah, I think they lived four streets over. <laughs> it wasn't exactly subtle. Yeah. Um, and there's also the working with leadership. So some bishops would be, you know, welcoming and loving and be like, you know, come as you are. Like everyone is here to, to learn and grow. And other bishops would be like, come into my office every Sunday because I need to make sure you're worthy uh, after this last week. And I was like, for what reason? Like, do you do this for all of the guys you talk to? Like, mm-hmm me coming out to you and saying, I'm trying to make it work somehow means that I need to be checked on all the time. Like, I think I'm less of a risk than the people who I know are sneaking into the, you know, the other dorms. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so hearing that, like uh, in some ways I'm encouraged that some bishops were supportive and that they said, yeah, you bet. And we, you know, we love you. Thank you. Just thanks for being here. But then that there are those that would, you know, monitor you or, or seek to do that. And then people who probably on campus, I mean, we've sort of given this, 
this uh, understanding that everyone's like, oh, we hate gay people. But I'm sure there were lots of people on campus who were like, that's great. We love you. Thank you so much for being here and embraced you. Is that fair to say? Yeah, um, I I was out in my program mm -hmm. at BYU. And because I had supportive professors, that was the only reason I stayed. If I didn't have that support from people who were over things, like I don't think I would have been able to make it through. My I had a couple of really vocally homophobic classmates mm. um, who would just say things like, well, queers should get off campus because we don't want them here. Like in the middle of a computer lab, like no, not prompted, just kind of saying it. Ugh. So, yeah. I mean, it's... So, so I hear that. My heart hurts for that. I don't want that to be the experience. But then hearing that experience and knowing that those are, are people who, you know, not only on a 30,000-foot level claim to be Christian people, that they're clearly missing a point, but even more narrow in a scope that these are people that, you know, w would stand and bear their testimony and say, you know, that I believe that this is the true church and would hear and and probably make covenants in temples, you know, like that. That's that sort of oomph degree. And yet are saying things like that. How how do you or how did you or how do you look at that and 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 say, man, this would be a place that I would ever feel safe in staying? Mm, I think the hard part for me with the churches. If we look at, you know, the people who are trying to do right by the people that come with, like, if you want to, like, true Christians, people who are trying to live as Christ taught mm -hmm. to the best of their ability, people will always fall short. And so I have a hard time being, like, I'm very willing to be critical of people's behaviors, but hard have a hard time criticizing the people and saying, like, they're inherently bad. Mm -hmm. With the church looking at the kind of the broken promises, you know, they told me my entire life that the only way that you can be gay or same-sex attracted mm -hmm. uh, is either if you're celibate or if you aren't celibate, you'll leave God's fold and become a horribly depraved sex addict. And finding that the reality is different, that kind of betrayal of trust and then calls into question a lot of other things. So leaving was both a like doctrinal split for me and also a cultural split where some people are genuinely trying to make it a better place. But once someone is burned, it's really hard for them to go back to the place that burned them. Yeah. So I'm hopeful that maybe the membership or the culture or the doctrine gets sorted out and it will be a safe place for queer people in the future. But for those who've come before me, my generation, arguably the people who are there now, it's not a very safe place. And it's hard to advocate, at least for me, to tell people like, oh, like, stick around, it'll get better mm -hmm. when the cost is mental health. Like I've lost friends to suicide or, you know, deeply harmed by depression or, or these other um, kind of side effects of being trying to force yourself to fit the mold. So when we talk about a little bit of an absence, actually, let's take a break and we'll come back and I want to talk about the church component. Um, we'll come back and do that in the third block of the cultural hall. Hey, this is Dan, the laptop man from PC laptops. I know we're going through a lot right now. Many states are quarantining people to their homes so that they have to work remotely. One of the things that's really important is to have a computer that's functioning correctly. One with a good webcam, one that's fast so you can be productive, one that has a good quality screen because you're going to be on this all day remotely. Computer supply has been strained because manufacturing has almost stopped. At PC Laptops, we've secured a limited quantity of laptop and desktop computers that are backed with a lifetime service guarantee. They're available for you right now in limited quantity. The great thing about PC Laptops is this. Once you buy your new computer, if you have any problems or questions, we're here to take care of you. Also, to make it really easy right now, 
we've arranged with some banks to offer 12 months special financing. Get into PC Laptops right now because at PC Laptops, we're here for you and we're in this together. PCLaptops.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, remember that there is the Cultural Hall back row. It's a Facebook group. It's free. You can just join in and have nerdy conversations, side tangential conversations about things that get brought up in each of these episodes. Almost 200 people in the Cultural Hall back row group. We'd ask you to just find it on Facebook. You can find it by searching the Cultural Hall back row. Pretty straightforward. Uh, There's also a link if you just go to the regular Facebook page for the Cultural Hall. You can find that group there. Matt. So... I would almost think that within, and and maybe that's where people sort of lean in because they're like, his dad's an apostle. I think that this applies with anyone's family. When a family is um, believing and or, for lack of a better term, sort of traditional, you have the instance where you say, hey, I am queer and this is the way that I'm going. But then also this experience where it's like the church in me, we're going to take a little bit of of a break. And that would almost seem like, to some, a second coming out or a second, you know, a need for a second um, sort of gathering explanation. And and depending on the family makeup, maybe even a harder conversation than coming out. Yeah, I, I think my friends jokingly refer to it as you come out three times when you come out as queer Mormon. You come out the first time when you tell people that you're queer. You come out the second time when you tell them that you have a hard time with faith. And then you have a third coming out when you're like, actually, I brought someone home. <laughs> Because until then, it's pretty theoretical for a, yeah. lot of, a lot of families. Yeah, I think the, the the interactions my dad and I have are the same as everybody else's. They're totally normal. The only difference is people seem to care more because it's happening a little bit publicly. Mm-hmm. I, I think the actual interactions themselves are the same. Like the when a dad is talking to his kid and a kid's talking to their parents about you know coming out, I think the dynamics are pretty similar. Um, talked with friends whose parents are bishops or state presidents or you know very active in their local wards and the dynamics seem very similar but yeah it is like a second coming because the first time uh you get preached or i got preached out a little bit of like well you know stay with the church it'll do you know it, it'll be where you're safest and then the second time i was like oh actually i'm not particularly safe here i tried to kill myself because of the church so like i don't think it's for me mm. then you know you have to have that conversation and then work through that and and i think the skills and patterns that we'd established before when we were talking through like hey we don't know what this means yet but we'll figure it out and making sure that love was always affirmed uh were what helped with those conversations because we already had a framework of like hey we can disagree or we can not have an answer or a resolution and still be okay with each other Hmm. one of the difficulties is not everyone gets that i think in my situation i feel very blessed very fortunate that my family was uh, affirming even in their worst moments they were still like we love you it was never in that was never in question and when i say worst it really wasn't terrible it was just you know awkwardness sure um but there are people who face rejection uh in very tangible ways or being removed from their own homes like coming out is not always something that you can do safely and i think that's also a difficulty that people face yeah, I, I know just sort of anecdotally that there are like um, homeless shelters for teenage um, folks in the state of Utah who come out to their family and mom or dad or mom and dad say, well, that's fine. Be gay, but not in my house. Find your own place to live. Those kind of things. I think the surveys from 2019 were 40 percent of homeless youth identified as LGBTQ, which if the average rate uh, in the population is roughly 10 percent, 8 to 10 percent then they're overrepresented by four times. Hmm. Let me ask you, is there a difference in the kind of affirmations that come from coming out as queer and 
and to use the term that we're using, coming out as as no longer wishing to be a part of the church, whether that's formally with either an excommunication or having your records removed or just sort of taking a break? Are there different ways that we can be affirming um, for the religious aspect that we wouldn't need to be or that we wouldn't maybe want to be within the queer or vice versa? I think they end up being fairly similar because a person's expressing a genuine desire that they have, whether that's for um, who they love and how they love when you come out as queer, or if it's someone talking about their spirituality, which is part of them, like a very meaningful part of them. It's either a lack thereof or a, a changing in spirituality. I think the showing care and affection and being excited for the person as they kind of come into their own, whether that's queer or non-religious or other religious, right? There's a lot of people who transition out of Mormonism to other other faiths. Bringing that with excitement and saying like, I'm so glad that you are comfortable in your life to make these choices, to be authentic. I think the principles are pretty similar. Uh, one of the things that I always hear within that though is like, well, but we're praying for him that he'll come back or that she'll, you know, find her way. And I, th- I just, I think of how well-intentioned statements like that probably are, but how terribly harmful they are to the person who either has come out or has left the church. Yeah, it's, again, it, it's this con- kind of condescension of like, well, like, you can make your own choice, but someday you'll realize the folly of your ways and, like, the prodigal child return, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at your lowest point when you find you need God again. Like, it, it's this kind of, it's got so much baggage that it's hard for it to come across as anything other than condescending. You, you touched on something, and I want to ask about it and uh, wonder if you would be comfortable speaking um, to it. You talked about um, not not only suicidal ideation, but it seemed like even um, perhaps an attempt. Are you willing to talk about that? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm trying to think through like the APA guidelines so that I don't talk about suicide in a way that could promote contagion. Um, sure. Uh, I So there have been... There was one instance of an attempt and then one very near miss at an attempt, um, both due to pressure surrounding um, initially pre-coming out and then shortly thereafter at BYU when I came back, um, very clearly realizing I didn't have anywhere to go or belong in my local community. Like my family might love me, but the people who were around me were not always a safe place for me. And I think the difficulty with talking about this is that's so long ago for me now. Um, and so much healing has occurred that like I can go back to that place, but it's clinical. It's it's no longer emotive. Yeah, I mean, what do you want to know? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I would to first say um, I am so grateful that we're able to to have you here and to have you be able to share your experience for the betterment of other people. And so I I don't know I don't know if it's grateful for me to say that it, that. I'm, 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 you know, glad that it didn't happen or that it, you know, whatever that is. I don't know if that's tactless or tacky. I certainly don't mean it that way, but I, you know, I've, I've benefited from this conversation. I think that would be the first thing that I would say. And then, and then the second, from the, from the limited understanding that I have around suicidal ideation and those things, like I know that it just seems so hopeless, right? It literally, you feel like nowhere else to turn. So if there is someone that is listening to this and hearing your words and, you know, seeking for hope, whether they're, you know, queer Mormon or they don't have a place in their religious community or, you know, familial strife or whatever those things. Um, I guess I would, I would just ask you to speak to those that maybe feel hopeless. The hardest part about being in places that low, that heavy, that, that hopeless is that the parts of you that 
keep you going, the rational parts of you that try to construct reasons are kind of turned inwards and turned against you. And it's a time when there's there's not solutions. You can't logic your way out of it. You can't try to do something, just be like, oh, it gets better immediately. The only thing that I can speak to on that is that it's a temporary state and all things change. Hmm. If you asked me seven years ago, do I want to keep existing? The answer would have been like a definitive no. But now after what has happened in those years, like therapy is an amazing tool. And if you have access to mental health care, absolutely great, grab that branch. And that can be a saving thing for so many people. But if you ask me, you know, every year since then, how I felt about the, the life that I've had because I didn't succeed, because I didn't try, it gets better. It doesn't get better because it just always will. It gets better because you make it better. And there are people that you just might not know or remember or see who are there. Like the aloneness is irrational, just like the other parts. And if it's the people in your immediate circle, then cast a wider net. One of the most beautiful things about queer culture is the notion of found family. I find it deeply ironic and also very painful that the LDS church and the queer community have this huge emphasis on family and what that means. One of them has a very narrow definition of what family means. And the other one is anybody who shows up and by demonstration proves that they are there for you in word and in deed. And I love the queer definition of family. And that's one that I want to like the church to adopt in a more formal setting as opposed to a prescriptive form of the family. It's more of the principles that found it. Queer family can always be found. Like if you are alone, there are people there. You, they will find you or you will find them. But go where you are loved. You know, with recent events uh, that occurred you know, down at the Y, the the rainbow, the rainbowing of the Y. I don't know what we call that, where the uh, different groups for the color of the campus, they took the flashlights up to the Y and BYU said, we did not approve that. Uh, other universities, even in the state of Utah, took that as an opportunity to be like, hey, queer people, we love you. Come here. That's very much a marketing thing, certainly. But what else do you think that that, you know, dismissal or that, hey, we didn't approve that statement from BYU to the LGBTQ community what I mean what what did that say and then how can it be repaired or can it well a lot of it is the spoken and the unspoken if you only ever affirm your disinterest your distancing yourself from or your like outright rejection of queer topics or queer issues then it's pretty clear where you stand because there's a audible silence whenever there are needs for affirmations and there's nothing at best, there's nothing. And at worst, there's, hey, we didn't approve that. Don't do that with our name. Mm-hmm. I think my friend phrased it well when they said, you don't get credit for pulling the knife out of somebody's back if you're the one who put it there. Mm. And so when people are talking about when will the church or when will BYU or when will the culture be, like, when will it be better? How do you repair it? I think there are things that you can't undo. And the only way is to move forward and try to be better. But for those who have already been harmed, like when when is it okay to trust somebody who's again once they've broken like a sacred bond with you if they've violated your trust when when they're not the one who gets to decide when you give it back to say oh you should forgive me and come back because i did blank that's not for the the perpetrator to decide it's for the victim to decide is it better than it was a decade ago within the church I think it is better than it was a decade ago. I don't think it's in a place that's particularly good. I mean, a decade ago, people were still recommending mixed orientation marriages as a solution, uh, which is like deeply harmful language. 
even recently we have uh, kind of the bare minimum of we're no longer kicking you out of our homes. And that is somehow, you know, a laudable achievement. And it is, it is, it is progress. But if your minimum is, well, we didn't kick them out of their home, of, of our house as a teenager, you know, it's not a good baseline. Uh, my, my roommate um, and like childhood friend put it um, this way that we talk about queer people as so strong for being able to overcome and to like, despite or all of these things that have happened, like they're so resilient. And he says, that's bullshit. We're talking about, you know, 12 and 15 year old children who have to be resilient in the face of knowing that the world doesn't want them. And we celebrate something that's awful. Hmm. Like uh, for every heroic story, for every like triumph of like love in the community, it's got this long shadow of tragedy of how we got here in the first place. And so to, to look at it and say it's better now, like it is true, but the amount of distance yet to go is so large that I think it's premature to, to slow down on trying to make things better. How much of an impact do you feel like, I mean, certainly with, you know, your dad is an apostle. We think of Tom Christofferson and his brother D. Todd is an apostle. Uh, there's another another one of the apostles who I believe his daughter is a lesbian. Uh, don't quote me because I don't know who that is unless you can speak to that. But how much do you think that the just the impact of knowing the two of you as individuals, how much do you think that that impacts, you know, your dad and Elder Christofferson when they're talking about you know, LGBTQ issues within the church? Uh, well, if I'm going to quote directly, which is going to get me in trouble, it's, we love all of my, I love all of my children equally. Uh, when my dad was asked this question, does no, does your son being queer change anything about this? His response was, I love all my children equally. Which is to say, I think it does, but it's never going to be a thing where they publicly acknowledge people's interactions. And I think that's a little bit of a cop-out on their part to say, oh, well, we know somebody directly. It's never been a problem of speaking. People have been talking about queer issues in the church. They've been talking about this uh, kind of as long as there have been a need to, which is roughly the beginning, because queer people have been part of the membership the entire time. Um, Brigham Young had a son who was a drag queen, which mm -hmm. I think is a fun piece of history a lot of people don't know. Sure. It's never been a problem of speaking. It's always been a problem of listening. And so while there are people who are closer by proximity or just by familial connection, things don't change until people want to listen. And I think that's the difficulty is, you know, I can tell my story, you can host a hundred people on this podcast and all the other podcasts telling their story. And until people want to hear, then all the speaking is for not. And it's not to say that the speaking isn't valuable and that it won't get through. It's just, we've been talking to these issues for so long. The progress has to come from people learning to listen. But, but to me, and I want to push back a little bit, because to me, I think that it becomes different when we know someone. I can, I can remember my high school, you know, my high school years, I didn't know anyone who was gay. And so I probably said really horrible things, things that, you know, if I think back to, I'm like, man, that was horrible. And then I remember my first year back from my mission in college, I was, I studied theater and, uh, and in the, the, uh, the first play that I was cast in, there was this really like, you know, a flamboyant gay guy. And I loved him. He was so fun to be with. And I was like, oh, he's gay. Well, what does that mean? And then I then like all of the things that I had ever thought and all these things that I had framed, I was like, well, wait a minute. No, that's this guy. No, all those things that I thought before, all those things that I said, that's not this guy. This guy is 
fun. He's, you know, not to say that I didn't think that gay people were fun. Now I'm talking myself into a circle. But like all of these preconceived things that I had about gay people went out the door when I actually knew one. And that allowed me to open it up to to where I, you know, I, I know that I have a lot more to learn, but I certainly feel like I can advocate more, want to know more, be curious more, speak to and 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 about more queer issues just because I actually know someone who was and have since then obviously met other people. I think that that makes a bigger difference than people would think. Yeah, so I think it does. I think the there's kind of a peculiarity in this arena where the church is so top down in a lot of ways that when we're looking at cultural shifts, uh, we'll, we'll, there'll be a lot of them that happen at the ground level at the individual f- knowing friends, knowing family, having siblings, having an aunt or an uncle or, or, or knowing that. But until that, when we look at the organization, uh, it seems sort of unmoved even over this kind of awakening in the last decade as queer issues have become more po- uh, moved to the forefront in society a little bit more. People can talk about them more openly. Um, my cousin noted that when the family exclusion policy, depending how you want to frame it, November 15th, uh, November 5th, 2015, mm-hmm. the policy changed then. Uh, it was horrible and abrasive and very damaging. But in her congregation, it was the first time people had ever talked about queer issues mm. together. And as that has kind of opened up, it has kickstarted these conversations. I think we're going to find that there's this shift where the culture is now open enough to discuss these topics and that there will need to be reaction top down in order to, I mean, we're, we're looking at this when, we, when we, people talk about why they're leaving the church. There's a lot of this about queer issues specifically where the people they know aren't at all the stereotypes they've been led to believe. Yeah. And, and just that the younger generation is just like, yeah, they're gay. What, what's the big deal? Right. And they, so they go, they go to church and hear, you know, different things or feel different things. A lot of people, I think, just suppose that it's a thing that the church will age out of, and I'm not terribly comfortable with that. Uh, I think that's a passive approach, and I think for those who are hurt by it, it's a little bit too slow. Yeah, I would agree with that. I don't, I don't like that. I feel like if we're if we are, you know, God's church led by a prophet, that you know, it should be more actionable than we waited for those that you know weren't necessarily as familiar or comfortable with queer issues to die for all intents and purposes until someone else who was younger and and could embrace those issues better i i I don't don't like that yeah i think it i think the the incongruity here is that it lacks moral daring when we look at like early church history and sort of the ideals of the church about you know speaking truth to power and and representing christ and being kind of like radical uh advocates for those we care about and just you know looking at that then seeing people take the conservative route, I don't mean that politically, I mean that in the, like, let's not risk anything, let's not overextend, let's be calm and, and you know, wait it out. It feels very incongruent with this notion of moral daring of like, we will do the right thing because it's right despite the popularity. Well, Matt, I, uh, I promised that I would keep this at the time that we have kept it. I have one question that I want to ask you, but before I do that, I would ask you this. Is there anything that you feel like within uh, your story, within the things that we sort of queued up but maybe didn't deliver on that you feel like we should address before I let you go? No, not not that I think we'd have time for time for. <laughs> so so who knows? You know, sometimes we get requests from people who listen to say, hey, could you get so and so back on and talk to him about that? Um, there is one question that we do ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall. And I would ask you to interpret this however you will. But the question remains, what is your favorite part of your faith? I think my favorite part and the part that's stayed with me through all of the growth and transitions and changes in my life has been the deeply humanist core that our choices matter 
and we can impact our own lives for the better. And that when we make decisions, like we are empowered to make decisions for ourselves, for the betterment of ourselves and those around us. And I think that notion rings true everywhere I've been in my spiritual journey. So that's my favorite part of my faith. I love it. We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and that when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, Brother Brent, Ken Williams, and BigMikesProducts.com will be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the Cultural Hall show.